Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. I'm Olev. Uh, thank you all for joining me live and for anyone listening online later. All of the views that are expressed in uh, the show are my own. They don't represent MSP Waves or anyone else. So, okay, great. Sorry, <laughs> I was worried then because I've had my fair share of technical problems. Let's hope that they uh, won't show up later. Um, so, this episode is a rather big subject. Um, I have a lot to cover today. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through it all. And if we have to, I'll just split it up and carry on uh, next week. But the subject of this episode is money. And uh, on my uh, Steam It post, I said money, what is it and how do we deal with it? So we have a lot to cover. Let's get uh, right to it. Now, I have to say one thing. Um, when I do this show, I'm trying to be um, relevant to as many people as possible. And so we have people in the chat who are listening live, who are mostly, I think, Steamians, from what I uh, gather. And so Steamians obviously are already very much aware of you know, decentralization and other forms of currencies and therefore more aware of the problems uh, that our current system might have. Um, but this podcast is also meant for people who don't know that much about these subjects and don't have as much experience. And I'd like to make it uh, appealing to them as well. So I'm going to try and build this up from the beginning. And I assume that some of you will probably know at least some of the things that I'm going to talk about. So I apologize in advance. But I hope that in the entirety, this episode will have someone for everyone. We're going to build it up slow. And in the end, we're going to get to basically what we can do with this and how it relates to the eco-village model. So, without further ado, let's uh, get started. Now, I want to talk first of all about the concept of money and the history of where this actually came from. So, when we look at the beginning of money and what we call money and, let's say, banking uh, systems, there's a lot of sort of obviously controversy as to what exactly is the starting point and where you start counting as money. And so I think it's important to make a distinction first off between two different things. One of them is what we call bartering, which is exchanging certain goods uh, one for the other. And the other is a form of currency where you have a certain object or item that represents uh, something else and represents value. And these two concepts basically have two different um, categorizations, which is one of them has intrinsic value, uh, and this is the form of barter. So the thing itself, the item, has value in and of itself. doesn't matter whether it's coffee beans, gold coins, or a chicken. The thing itself uh, has value without being exchanged for something. Whereas with currency, with paper money, or with, let's say, uh, uh, less uh, worth metals of uh, coins, then we have an item that doesn't hold intrinsic uh, value, but actually represents something else. And there's an agreement among people that however much it represents is going to be passed around everyone so nobody loses out. So we have these two different uh, systems, well, not systems, but different ways of looking at things. One of them is having intrinsic value and the other one is having extrinsic value. 
Ah, Swoop here says, banking came from the Jews. They had a ghetto bench where they would loan money to Christians. Bench equals bank. That's, uh, I think, yeah, the, in the Italian, uh, banco, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and again, that was the, form, the first form of sort of banking where they would have these transactions. But the idea of bartering and even the idea of having an item that's an agreed upon by everyone to represent as a form of currency uh, was a very, very old, ancient idea long before um, the idea of banking. And so when you talk about the Sumerians and in Egypt and lots of different cultures, whether they had shells or whether they had whatever it was, bananas, uh, they would use something that was available to everyone that was agreed upon to have this value and they would trade with it. So this led to a certain system and it's a system where you can basically decide without any constrictions what the value of something will be. And so let's look at it very simply in today's economy. When we have a currency, it doesn't matter if it's the dollar or steam or any form uh, which is traded, which is, which is uh, given value from an outside source, it's actually decided upon. It doesn't matter if it's decided upon by a person or by computer algorithms or by whatever, but it, it gets its value from a different system, a separate system that's outside of that item itself. And so we see this with obviously financial crises. I mean, being here in Portugal and knowing the history in uh, 2008, people who were working their land and people who had uh, produce, which had intrinsic value, they were growing food, they were growing certain produce, they could sell it, suddenly the value of those things was lessened. And for example, uh, the debt that they could have could suddenly increase. And so there was this external factor that was changing the value of the item itself. So when we look through history, um, when I was thinking about this episode and how I wanted to approach it, I realized that one of the earliest memories that I have of coming to terms with and dealing with this uh, phenomenon of money was I read a book, I think I was about 20-something, 20 22, 23, uh, called The Prince by Machiavelli. And I think it's a very famous book and we even have the uh, adjective Machiavellian. Um, it's a very famous word, but the book itself was, was, had a very big impact on me. And I realized, I think, that not many people have actually read the, uh, the book itself. I can understand because uh, it certainly had more new words and increased my vocabulary more than any other book that I've read until or since, I have to say. I had a notebook that I would write like 10 new words, you know, for every page. And uh, it was a very good process, but it was very difficult. But I digress. The point is... There's a small debate for those who have never heard about uh, Machiavelli and the Prince. There's a debate as to whether he was being sincere or satirical uh, and critical. And so he wrote this book, which is meant to be a set of instructions for a prince. Um, and there's various debates as to who that prince could have been or whether it was an ideal prince, someone who he was sort of imagining. But 
Um, I think it doesn't matter which. For me personally, especially when I read it, I certainly read it as being satirical. But that was also because I couldn't believe someone would be so, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the word is, like cruel, basically, and immoral, um, willingly and openly. So I assumed it would be a great guise to lead a prince to believe that you're being sincere and you're actually offering him advice, when really behind your words you're criticizing the abhorrent ways that uh, you think he behaves. But whether he was writing satirically or not is irrelevant. I think to this day, in my mind, it's a very important book, both to understand uh, money and the system that this uh, currency has led to, and obviously to understand um, ruling and how to rule a people. And so I have a few quotes here. They're a little bit long, and I, uh, I hope it will be easy enough to follow. Maybe I'll, uh, I don't know if I can upload this right now, but uh, I'll try and copy it to the chat as well. But it's a quote from the book, and it's talking about um, when a prince is trying to occupy new territories that he's gotten through uh, whatever, through war, or acquired somehow, and it's talking specifically about uh, colonies that may be far away or other lands. And so uh, I'll just post the quote in chat and I'll read it for those who are listening. A prince does not have to spend much on such settlements, for with little or no expense, he can send the settlers there and keep them there. He offends only a minority of the citizens from whom he takes land and houses to give to the new settlers. Those whom he offends, remaining poor and scattered, are never able to injure him, while the rest, being uninjured, are easily kept quiet and at the same time are anxious not to cause trouble in case they lose their land and houses. Okay, that was a bit much and it's a little bit out of context, but basically what he's saying is that if a prince wants to rule this new land where he doesn't know the customs and he doesn't know the language, it's best to have other settlers come in. And these foreigners who come with a status from uh, his, his empire will actually be given the land of uh, the people who are living there. And in this way, he ensures that what we'll call the lower class, the people who are uh, driven out of their homes, they remain poor and scattered, and therefore they can't uh, become a unity, become a, a threatening force. And, and then the upper caste, that class as it was, the middle class, uh, those who come in and take their lands are afraid to lose their status, and therefore they never want to cause any harm. And I think, I mean, the reason I chose this quote, I, I, there's a lot of things that he could have been uh, talking about, but yeah, exactly, Rondon. Sounds a lot like what's happening now. So much of this book and so much of what Machiavelli talks about in, in the 16th century, if I'm not very much mistaken, is really relevant to today. And we can look at many different examples of, you know, invaders, people who come in, and it doesn't matter um, what the reasoning is or who the people are, there throughout history have been massive movements of people colonizing new areas. And I think to this day you can see a cultural colonization, which is no longer with, with swords, but definitely 
cultural appropriation to distant lands. When I, um, when I was traveling in Ecuador, I was, I was surprised. I really didn't expect to see the, the reaches of capitalism so clearly. And it was so easy to see the dissonance between these people who were so natural and growing their food and, and bathing in the river and doing all of these things that are probably traditions that go back thousands of years. And then there's a PlayStation connected to the television uh, in the living room. This wooden hut, which isn't quite sealed off because it doesn't get very cold. And you've got mosquitoes, nets everywhere, but everything comes in. And then this PlayStation, I was just so surprised to see that. And then I discovered that these people that I was actually staying with in the jungle, they weren't, um, I think the term is Aboriginal, but in there they were, um, they're, they're called mestizos. I can't remember the term for the, uh, the original, uh, I think American Indians, they're called, um, in South America. But basically these people, these mestizos, who are, you know, they're, they're called a mixed race, so they're the mix of the Spanish uh, invaders who came and the locals who were there, and these mestizos are sort of one of the classes, they were given land in the jungle, and they were given the land of whoever the tribes were living there. And so the tribes can't come together and band together to be a force. We can actually see them now a little bit um, doing this and actually conducting certain lawsuits because some people are helping them, but obviously for a long, long time they really couldn't uh, band together, they couldn't group up because they didn't know what was even happening. And these mestizos were suddenly getting land and becoming landowners and becoming wealthy. They didn't want to lose that status. So they certainly wouldn't uh, go against the rulers of the time who had given them that. So it really is, you can see so many examples of this uh, happening to this day. Um, yes, Mackenzie, we're talking about uh, the Prince. Oh, are you reading chat or did you get that from, uh, from the description? Because that's, uh, that's very impressive, <laughs> if so. So, um, reading this book back then had an enormous impact on me. And in honesty, to this day, I still think about it. Um, he also describes a few things which are sort of, I think he tries to be like philosophical about the state of man and what human beings are like and should be. And so I've got another quote that he says here, and it, it really resonates with me as basically as capitalism to a certain degree. Obviously, the capitalism that is, uh, that's around today is a, is a bastardization of what the original capitalism was supposed to be but we won't go into that right now. We'll talk about this element uh, which seems to be very prevalent today. And so uh, Machiavelli says, and I'll just post another quote. Oh, sorry, I'm a, uh -huh, that was the wrong uh, quote. That's the same one again. Let's try this again. Sorry about that. Um, okay. There's a lot of uh, technology. The wish to acquire is in truth very natural and common, and men always do so when they can. For this, they should be praised, not blamed. But when they cannot do so, yet wish to do so by any means, then there is foolishness and error. 
Um, this is, I think, a very powerful uh, quote, in my mind at least, and um, it really makes me think very much of the situation. I, I might not be the perfect person to uh, talk about it, but the situation in America with the so-called, you know, uh, like slums and the underdeveloped areas, where there's this concept of the American dream, which seems to be different from what what's, goes in the field. But what uh, Machiavelli says here is that the wish to acquire, the, the will of people to gain, and not just to gain, but to gain more, and to gain more to a certain degree indefinitely, is natural and common and shouldn't be blamed. And, and these words to me are very, very strong and ring in face of the bankers that we see today and what's happened. They are very scary words. And the final part where he says, but when they cannot do so, when these people can't get the means, yet wish to do so by any means, uh, meaning they resort to other means for that, then there is foolishness and error which really resonates with, um, in my mind, with that saying where if, you're a, if a man robs a bank, uh, he goes to jail, but if a bank robs the world, they get away with it. I'm butchering that completely, I do apologize if anyone remembers the original quote. But basically, the, what people would be put in prison for if they did on a personal level, because you know, even if they're poor, if they can't feed their families, if they really are pushed to it by dire, uh, circumstances, they still aren't forgiven. It's still against the law. But if you're a bank or an organization or corporation and you're doing it on a massive scale, somehow we live in a world where that's not only acceptable but sometimes legal. So um, I think I'll, I'll move on from Machiavelli now because it's, uh, there's, there's so much that you really... Uh, I would highly recommend to anyone who's interested in the sociology that's going on today and the situation with the monetary system. If you haven't read it, give it a skim through, even just read a few parts. Or yeah, I saw someone who's listening to the audiobook. So that's, it's a really powerful read. Um, ah yeah, Mackenzie said, Mackenzie says, I want to get a paper version of this book because it was difficult for me to listen to. I thought it was dense and so informative that just listening wouldn't do it justice. Oh yeah, I read it. It, it. it took me a long, long time to get through a page. You just read it and have to reread it. And yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a lot packed in there. But it really is eye-opening when you see what he's talking about. And so I'd like to sort of wrap up this a little bit and talk about um, the underlying system which we have here which if we started from a bartering system where people developed an economy and this idea in order to work together, in order to share resources, in order to be able to function on a larger scale, we see that in time, uh, in the name of convenience and in the name of you know, technology and advancement, there seems to have risen this class of people and this class of people are the people who deal with money. And it has always been the case, uh, even, you know, merchants. So if you go to a place and buy uh, something there, produce there, and then travel to a different place and sell it at a higher price, you're really creating value. You've obviously worked for it and you should get paid for that work, but it's not a delivery. It's selling it and it's selling it at the price that you deem is worth it. And so 
I mean, I think Plato was talking about it. That's the beginning of this ability of greed to sort of manipulate the system to acquire wealth uh, out of nothing, out of thin air. And I think we certainly see a lot of that system uh, around us today with, well, whatever. We, we won't even go into all of the problems of the uh, monetary system that's run today right now because it's a whole uh, thing. But certainly this idea of creating profit out of thin air, uh, whether you call it debt or anything else, is a, is a very, very powerful idea that I think has shaped a lot of humanity. And I think the reason or, or the way that it's shaped humanity throughout the years was really ruling with this power of money. And so if people control, if somebody controls an economy, controls the coin, controls the currency, controls the value of things, of everything, then that person really has a lot of control over the people. And the people are the ones who give power to this currency. So if we go back to the bartering and we move on to extrinsic value, it's always a group of people together who agree upon this system to trade with. I agree that this chicken is worth whatever, three bananas, and we switch, and there's an agreement between us. If we don't agree, then the things don't have that value. If you say to me, I want three bananas, and I say to you, that's too much, it's not worth it, there's no other system in place that, that it exists. It, just, it, it isn't the case. And so there's always this necessity for an agreed-upon system that everyone participates in and everyone uh, lends power to the power of their belief. And so when you see the stock plummet, even though you physically may not have been harmed or lost your house in a fire or no, no physical action happened, and yet so many people decided to end their life. I'm talking about the, uh, the uh, uh, 1920s financial crisis where people were jumping out of buildings because they knew that they'd lost their money. But you can see how this agreed upon system where people are believing in it and giving it their faith is so powerful that it, it exists in the real world um, to a certain extent through actions. And so if we have a class of people, um, and I think it would be appropriate to call them a ruling class, then this class of people have been manipulating uh, the money the system of money throughout the years. And this isn't, I mean, <laughs> obviously there's a lot of studies that go into it and there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories about, you know, meeting in dark alleyways and agreeing upon. You don't even have to go there. I personally uh, may believe in a lot of those things because I've seen a lot of proof and evidence, but that doesn't even have to be my point. It's actually quite in the open that there have been classes of people who have been manipulating the monetary system for their personal financial gain. And we can see that today very easily in terms of the stock market. Um, I am no uh, expert when it comes to the stock market. I know very, very little, I think mostly from, you know, the last few Hollywood movies and uh, <laughs> some... Uh, some documentaries about the subject. I'm really not an expert. 
but I know enough to know that it's this system that's affected by what people think. Certain people and certain companies, and if more people are buying or more people are selling, it affects the value of those things. And, and a stock can crash um, because of anything, because of uh, belief, because of public opinion, basically. So this is a system that's very, very unstable and easily manipulated, usually by those who hold uh, the largest amount of money. And so I keep jumping back and forth from today throughout history because I really see a complete parallel between these two. Not, a, not exactly a parallel, a continuation. And so obviously the ideas evolved and uh, the technologies that have been available have evolved. But the system itself, whereby a select small group of people hold uh, the largest amount of money, and use that money to manipulate the system to their own ends, normally to gain more money or to use their power to gain more power. Um, this is a system that we see operating still today. The people may have changed, the money you know, may have changed, but the system itself, it doesn't matter if the individuals have been ruling for a thousand years or 50 years, the fact that there are individuals who are like this is enough for me uh, to understand that this system is really quite flawed and I think that if we are thinking about moving forward we have to address these problems that are inherent in the system. So how are we doing? 10.27 okay um, I'm gonna try and uh, keep on top of the time uh, <laughs> this one so I'll, uh, I'll do my best we'll see how it goes. When we talk about this manipulation of system. It's, uh, I think it's very easy to think about these sort of sinister plans that might have been, you know, hatched in order to enslave, but I really don't think that's necessarily the case. It might personally be the case on, on, on certain circumstances, but even the people who really set out with good intentions, and I mean historically speaking, because they interact with the system and this is how the system works, they are forced to behave in the same way and to utilize the system in the same way. And so I want to point to one specific difference which relates to Machiavelli that I see in society today as opposed to in history. And I think it would help to maybe paint a picture a bit. So if we look back throughout history, we when we learn about history, we learn about kings and knights and all of these very dramatized and sexy things. But most of humanity, for most of history, were basically farmers, uh, serfs. They were under a certain kingdom. They were part of a certain village. And they led, you know, quite boring and quite uh, repetitive lives for most of them. And that's really what history was. So when we think about you know, the, uh, the information that was available, the knowledge that was available to people, you know, how few people could read and write, how few books there were, etc., etc. It really was difficult to be able to grasp this vast system that was really controlled by very highly educated individuals, usually royalty or at least close to royalty, people who were reared from a young age, 
And so I think back then there was much more violence and it was a much more acceptable and also I think it wasn't quite necessary to evolve and thank this in fact this idea of ruling through fear um, was very very popular back then obviously and Machiavelli talks a lot about fear being an important part of a ruler that you must be feared etc. But Machiavelli also says something else he says that if you have a choice of ruling through fear or through love, um, if you have a choice of preventing problems arising in the first place, if you have a choice of being able to appease the people to a, a certain degree, then that would always be better than having a mutiny or having to fight it down or having to imprison people. Uh, unrest is a very dangerous thing for a ruler because that's basically how rulers change eventually. And so I think Machiavelli was talking about something that most rulers, not all obviously, but most rulers had a very hard time uh, doing, which is being able to maintain this, what Machiavelli would term a facade, this lie, this mask of being a benevolent ruler, of giving the people what they want, of appeasing them, of, you know, doing whatever it takes in order for them to be content enough to continue working the fields and growing your food and accumulating your wealth for you. And so throughout history, I think if we look at it, we can see that that really wasn't the case most of the time. Most of the rulers, even if they were painting themselves to be benevolent, they really were quite imbalanced when it comes to how much they gave back to the people. And that, I think, is part of what scares me most about today, because in my mind, that's what we, we witness around us today. And there's so many different examples. I'll just choose the easiest one because uh, everyone is aware of it. When we look at the film The Matrix, what they're saying is that there is this perfect system which is a lie and which keeps you content uh, with your lot in life so that you don't you know, quote-unquote, rebel. And, I mean, that's a very specific story and it can be interpreted uh, millions of different ways. But I think there is something underlying that which is very, very true today. When I look at our society and in my personal experience, whenever I've talked to people about these subjects, about money and the history of money and what the system is and about the history of humanity and the ruling class, I find it very, very hard to get across to most people. Most people really don't see either the relevance or they simply don't see it to be the case. And it's led me to, to understand it more and more that it really is an illusion. The fact that people can still listen to politicians, and I, I won't say all politicians, but certainly those who have been caught lying in the past, and we know there are quite a few of those. How can you listen to someone like that and still believe what they're saying? And that has to be the case certainly to a certain number of people because they do go out and vote for them. And I mean, I'm not going to get into politics here because that is the, you know, it's, it's a very, very big part of what I'm dealing with and what I'm talking about, but it's not 
individually based people very quickly can sort of take it to this or that politician i don't care about individuals i am talking about the system itself and the system of politics that i see today is exactly what machiavelli was talking about which is if you promise the people what they want to hear they will let you get away with anything for the time that you have in office and I think that as a sweeping statement, um, many, many politicians have seen that strategy to work. I'm sure that everyone can uh, think of an example of a, when a politician lied to get away with what they wanted. And it's, it's so bizarre that it's become so common that people are very nonchalant and blasé about it. They say like, well, you know, there's lots of jokes about politicians lying, but these are the people, whether, you know, officially or unofficially or, you know, whatever it looks like, but they certainly do run things to a certain degree. They're certainly high up in the chain. They certainly have a lot more access to information and, you know, decision-making than I do or than many of these people who are voting for them. So when I look around today and I see the system that we have in place, it really does strike me as being not um 1984ish maybe you know for those who know because that seems so far removed and so alien that it's we must notice that something wrong if it gets that bad but just good enough so that nobody wants to stir the boat we actually have it pretty good you know i've got a good job i don't want to lose what i have you know there are places in the world that are so much worse off just enough to keep the people content so they let all of these, not just politicians, but bankers and businessmen, etc., etc., um, that are getting away with, I mean, literally everything. I mean, if you, if you look throughout. So it really, it really is something that I've been thinking about for quite a long time and that I see around us is this huge illusion that we have this system in place and we call it democracy and we vote for those who we want and we, you know, we, we can go out and protest and we can write to our representative and we can do all of these things. But in the end, it doesn't really uh, matter. Um, okay, sorry. So revised sociology says, Mark? Well, Mac. Ah. Uh, is basic reading on politics. So much of them would have read him. Ah, you're talking about uh, Machiavelli. Yes, yes. Uh, among academics, he's, I mean, obviously one of the most uh, revered. Uh, but I really think, although it's quite thick, there is a lot to learn from him about, uh, just about today's society, not as, yeah, you know, ancient history. Um, anyway, I think that's very, very interesting, but uh, I hope you do too. So let's move on to the second part. If there are any uh, uh, questions or anything else, then please uh, let me know. Um, basically, how does all this relate to the eco-village model? And so in order to understand that, I want to talk a little bit about what these problems are. If we're not just looking at the situation, how bad it is for us, but what are the actual inherent flaws in the system that allow it to become like this. And I certainly don't uh, think of myself to be any sort of expert in the field or have any of these big answers. These are just some of the things that I personally have noticed, which are also 
I think, easily treatable on a, on a personal level as well. So I really try to focus like, okay, there are this, there's this massive system, this global capitalism that I really couldn't put a dent in or stop or do anything uh, to that system as a whole. And so I want to focus on what can I, as an individual, do in my personal life. So when I look at this system that we have in play, the system of the currency, the economy, and global capitalization, I think that one of the main problems is that there is this management of vast numbers of people. And whether we call those people, you know, a nation or uh, a city or even, you know, a, a small area, um, we have this system in place whereby there's this small group which is like the head that decides what to do. And these are the people who are in charge. And whether that's the city council or the government or whatever, those people are responsible for all the thousands or millions of, or hundreds of millions of people who are, who are underneath them. And this system means that, let's talk about it basically, the, the, the basic human needs that we were talking about when we talked about the eco-village. People need water, people need food, people need uh, sewer treatment. What our system has today is that we take these thousands or millions of people and we try to provide for them all using one centralized uh, system, one centralized place. And so all of the water gets aggregated in one place and then from that place we pump it out and we send it to all the different places. Now this system is an unnatural system. And I say unnatural specifically because it's a system that doesn't occur in nature. Nowhere in nature do we see a system whereby the decision-making is consistently that distant from where it's actually occurring. And of course, we can say that this is because, you know, we don't have that size, but even if we talk about, let's, let's talk about the largest, sorry, the largest organism that I've heard of, which is a, uh, a, um, a fungal, uh, fungi, um, I can't remember the term, sorry, but there's a fungi in North America, which is, I will have to look this up to be exact, but around 2.1 square miles, something like that. Please correct me in chat if anyone knows about this. Um, vast, vast territory. It's one continuous mycelial network. So even on that size, which is the largest organism that we know, every part of it is actually uh, controlled individually. Meaning that on every part of it, if it detects food, it doesn't send the information back to the head and then get a message back from there what we need to do. It makes that decision on the spot right there and each of the individual parts makes those decisions individually. Sorry. So, what does this mean about us? Well, we can see that with a system like that, you have uh, minimal wastage, you have much more efficiency and you have the ability to react appropriately and immediately and to rectify mistakes much more quickly.
And this is obvious to me why the systems in nature, we can look at, I keep coming back to these systems, I, I just realized, because I was going to say an ant colony, but we can see it in many different systems, whether it's our personal body, you know, very often we think of the brain as a great metaphor for this governing body. And we say the brain is in charge of the body. The brain tells the body what to do. It gets these messages from down and it uh, sends them back out. And that is partly true. That is part of what the brain's job is. But at the same time, uh, the body itself and the different parts are reacting to the environment outside. And it's not the case of, you know, making the decision of moving a muscle, but on an individual level all the way down to the cells, you can see that every part is interacting uh, individually. And it's not simply sort of being stimulated and then waiting for the brain to give a, a response and then responding. And so I think this is the system that we want to emulate. And when I look at the systems that are in place today where I can order food that was grown on a different continent. I mean, it's, that just blows my mind. The fact that I can literally go to a shop here and buy whatever it is, you know, a kiwi that was grown in South America and flown on an airplane, you know, to wherever, and then shipped on a truck uh, in a freezing or cooling system and then placed on the shelf and then comes to me, that cannot possibly be uh, the healthiest and most natural system. It just doesn't make sense. And so I really think that when we look at the way people are managed today, um, we see that there are these vast, vast numbers of people that far outweigh the systems that are supposed to support them. And eventually, uh, in most places, I won't say everywhere, because definitely there are places that are more successful, but you have people who fall between the cracks or who these systems aren't able to provide for, for whatever reason. And so, um, what I'm talking about here, and this is very fitting with STEAM, obviously, is a decentralized system. Now, I'm not going to go too much into it. A, we're getting close to the end of the show. And B, I am certainly no expert when it comes to, you know, uh, in general, I mean, uh, decentralized systems and political systems and monetary systems. I really am trying just to find the best way for me to live. But what I've come to realize is that there seems to be this sort of uh, balance between centralization and decentralization, between a governing body having power and the individual having power. And it's constantly going to be a decision between these two extremes. And we can look at countries today and at nations today and see that some places have um, a more centralized system. Uh, like, for example, in smaller countries, usually there's less of a division and so this, the one system, uh, sorry, the one governing body can have much more power. But we can see this is the case also in a place like China, where they have the one party system, where that party is basically uh, an absolute ruler and they have absolute power. And I won't go into whether that system is a healthy or an unhealthy one, but it's certainly an extreme. And if we go to the other extreme, I think the other extreme would have to be a form of anarchy, 
where there is no governing body and there is complete freedom for the individual. And so I think both of, the, both of these extremes, as is usually the case with extremes, are a little bit uh, unbalanced. And I think the system that would be most beneficial, and this is where the eco-village comes in, is the system that's suggested uh, basically in the, in the last episode about uh, the different, uh, sorry, how to provide the social needs and how to provide the physical needs. So when we look at an individual and we see the basic needs that they have, what we talked about, the system that's in place today is not providing the highest quality. And in times of crisis or emergency, sometimes it doesn't provide anything at all. We've seen that to be the case with uh, power outages in certain storms. Uh, we were here in Portugal and we had a crazy, crazy windy storm. I mean, loads of trees were pulled up. But the power was out for, I think it was about 12 hours or something like that. And I felt so helpless. You know, I had a bit of battery on my phone and a little bit on my laptop and I could sort of get away with that. But there was no internet, there was no Wi-Fi. So it suddenly made me uh, feel very, very dependent. And it really makes, you, makes me feel um, lacking in that power that I have to, you know, at best call up some governing body and tell them, hey, I'm one of thousands of individuals who need your help right now. Please come and take care. And I think we've all seen uh, the problems that can arise when, uh, when that happens. <clears throat> Sorry. So that's a bit of my thoughts on to what the problem of centralization and what the solution to that can be. Um, if we take humanity today, we see that it's divided into different sizes, and this is what I was talking about a little bit in the other episode. We have a country, sorry, we have a country of, I don't know, America has 350 million people under one president. I think that's uh, about right. That just number is just so baffling to me. 350 million people in some way to rule over. And then obviously in other countries, in, in Israel, which is a very, very small country, there are seven million people, or I think almost eight now. That's just too many people to try and manage from one place, from one centralized place. And so the idea of the eco-village as a, as a global model that can be implemented, I think it would be a very, very um, peaceful revolution. If we came to recognize this Machiavellian system, this system that we have in place today, whereby people are enslaved by debt that's invented by the banks, that's invented out of thin air, and these people are enslaved to the worst kind of slavery, which is an invisible slavery. Uh, a prison that actually looks like you're free. A prison where you're allowed to do almost anything. You're allowed to pursue anything within the realms that are agreed upon. But when it comes to things that are, I mean, for me, things that are more important, things that are more, um, more deep and not so superficial, somehow the system isn't really open to it and isn't really open to that challenge. 
And so that makes it very clear to me that this system that's in place is a very, very cunning, manipulative system that if we're hoping, if I'm hoping uh, to change or to improve, it has to be done very, very uh, thoughtfully. And I really don't believe that violence is the answer anymore. I think that the, the root of violence was something that humanity has always taken in terms of the revolutions. And we see the French Revolution, which led to the Industrial Revolution, was meant to do exactly what we're talking about here, was meant to overthrow the ruling class and give, disperse the wealth to the people. And we see that, you know, hundreds of years later, we're, we're really stuck in the same place. We've advanced technologically. We've certainly advanced in terms of a lot of things in our life. But that same system where there is a ruling class holding and hoarding the wealth and deciding what will happen with the others is still in place today. And so in order to be able to overthrow that, we have to be very, very clever about it. And so... I believe that the eco-village model can offer exactly that. So this is a vision that I had. I can't even remember exactly when it was. It was quite some years ago now. But when I was thinking about this and thinking about the system and how we can change it, I realized that we don't actually need to try and change it. We don't have to invest any energy in changing it. Because if you remember where we started out this episode, the power of the system does come from people's belief. And so it's very important to remember that if no one believes in the system, uh, the whole system falls, the whole system collapses. Um, sorry, I've got a bit of a cough. If you watch uh, uh, Rick and Morty, there's a great episode where the entire economy of the uh, galactic system uh, changes from one to zero, the value changes to zero, and so everyone's money is worth nothing, and suddenly no one is willing to do what they're supposed to because no one's getting paid and the whole thing crumbles. I really do believe that as exaggerated as that is, and obviously that's not how it works, the power of the system does come from the belief. If people didn't believe in it, as we've seen in financial crises, then the whole system can start tumbling down. But if we just burn the system, you know, attack the system, or try to change it from within, we've seen that these crises don't actually change the situation because what it does is, what it, does is it pushes people back into this state of survival where they're not willing to do that anymore and to work for change because they need food and they need water. So the system that I suggest is different. Ah, Rondon says fiat is faith. I didn't know that. Is that true or is that a, a joke? Because it, it should be true. <laughs> um, I'll have to check that out afterwards. So the system that I'm suggesting is this system where these eco-villages can be started by anyone. And this is why it's so crucial for it to be minimal cost, available to everyone all over the world, even in third world countries, because everyone everywhere has, you know, water and land and air, and these are what we need, basically. So anyone can set up this eco-village, and when you do, it will comprise of people, and these people who move there will have their water provided for them, have their food provided for them, have everything provided for them by the eco-village, and actually by their individual house on a personal scale. And so they will 
automatically be leaving the system. They will stop being dependent on the system. Now, obviously, this is a very gradual process, and I see this happening over a, a long period of time, a slow transition, because throughout this, and obviously me personally with this eco-village and every eco-village that we have today, for example, if you don't pay taxes, you can you know, be taken to prison or whatever. There are certain things that you have to do to be part of the system, and if you are against it, people with guns can come and put you in a cage. So there is still a certain line that you have to walk with the system and we can't just detach ourselves completely, in my mind. I mean, some people do, but you're risking something at that point. But if we make this transition whereby we give whatever we have to, whatever minimum is the demand of this system, but at the same time, we ourselves are weaning ourselves off of all of these dependencies, A, so that if in a time of crisis we can actually take care of ourselves, and B, because inadvertently that's actually weakening the system. If everybody stopped paying the electricity company, they would have less money. If everyone stopped buying produce, they would have less, you know. This whole system is dependent on people utilizing it. And I think that as we walk uh, further and further away and depend on it less and less, we will actually be stealing very, very uh, covertly, but stealing the power from them without them even, you know, realizing that it's a threat because it's simply going to be taking ourselves out of it. Um, Okay, I can see it's now 10.54 and there's been a few things in chat, so let me just run up over here. Uh, ah, it's just a practical definition, not an etymological. <laughs> I see. Um, well said. Okay, Revised Sociology says, has anyone else noticed how the news tends to anthropomorphize the markets? Hmm, interesting. I actually haven't noticed that, but I, I will from now on. But definitely, I mean, talking about the markets, there's, I don't know if, anyone has seen or was there was an old old episode of uh, South Park where I can't remember exactly what happens but I think Kyle goes to invest some money and he gives it to the banker and then he says like oh we'll put it there and we'll trade it and it's gone and then he says what do you mean it's gone and he just uh, starts climbing through this chain of command to try and understand what happened to this money that he was investing and it ends up uh, I can't remember exactly but being people playing chance basically but the whole idea of the marketplace and the market and how it works and how you can predict it and you know utilize it to make is a it's a very very dangerous business we can see today that um these stockbrokers and the people who are yeah, that's exactly a patient zero thanks yep <laughs> uh if you can see oh and rondon excellent yeah um you know we can really see that these people who are trading, who are becoming success, successful traders, are really, you know, are inexperienced in any kind of understanding of the system as a whole. You know, they get this, obviously, sales and that psychology, they got that down to a T. But in terms of actually running, you know, the, uh, the system itself, very, very few people really do understand uh, how it works and what's going on. And I think that's a very dangerous situation to have when there's a system that's so powerful and so inclusive that we've seen throughout history what happens when something can go wrong and people literally, you know, lose their lives and lose everything else. So uh, I think that this subject is a very, very important 
subject that I'd like to see more being talked of outside of small groups of people who are aware of what's going on, but actually, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, but actually being talked about, you know, in our everyday lives when we're deciding uh, who to vote for. Um, that's Margaritaville episode. Yes, Margaritaville. I forgot about that. That's amazing. I actually don't, uh, don't watch South Park uh, anymore, I'm afraid, but uh, the little bit that I've seen, they're still so relevant. Um, okay, I think that's it for me. I'm actually glad we managed to get through a lot of it. So uh, before we go forward, I actually have one last quote that I was uh, wondering to do with, um, from Machiavelli, because I thought it would be a good quote to, to end on. Now, I'll be completely sincere here. I wrote that down, and now I actually can't remember what the quote was. So let's find out together. I'll, um, I'll post it here on chat as well. <clears throat> um, okay. It must be remembered that there is nothing more difficult to plan, more doubtful of success, nor more dangerous to manage than a new system. For the initiator, as the enmity of all who would profit by the preservation of the old institution and merely lukewarm defenders in those who gain by the new ones. So I'm sorry, I hope I didn't read that too quickly. I'll go over it just very quickly again to say what he means. But basically, when you are initiating a new system that is challenging the old one, you're always going to be met with the most adversities because those who have everything to lose will defend the old system. And those who can gain will only be, as he uh, terms it, lukewarm defenders because they don't know the new system, they don't know if it'll work, etc. And so uh, I think the most important thing to carry on what he says, um, if that is truly the case, is that we make sure that when we want to bring this new system in, we have faith that it will work. We have faith that even though it has never happened before, we've never seen it before, uh, just as so many things that we see today, it doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be. Okay, thank you very much, everyone who was listening here at home. I was Olev, and this was the Discomfort Zone podcast.